Welcome to the SaaS Ad Lab podcast, where we interview the stories of SaaS founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. My name is Luis. I'm the founder of Fancy Agency, a digital marketing agency specializing in selling SaaS companies. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Jeff. He is the co-founder over at Outseta. First of all, thank you so much for being on here. It's a pleasure having you. And to get started, why don't we just dive into you know a little bit of your background and and how all this really came to be? Sure. Well, well, first and foremost, thanks for having me. Um, so just by, by way of background, uh, I sort of found my way into a career building SaaS startups, um, largely by accident. Uh, I went to college to be a writing major uh, and had visions of writing for Sports Illustrated or a newspaper or something like that. Um, got out of school in 2008, right as the economy was crashing, uh, and also saw jobs in the newspaper industry and magazine industry sort of uh, folding in, in tandem with that. Didn't want to be a professional blogger. Um, so I went back to school, got an MBA, uh, and ended up uh, in, in Boston, um, signing on with a very small startup that's called Buildium uh, when it was still a very, very young company. Um, I was one of the first seven or eight employees there. Um, and long story short, had no real interest in software, no real interest uh, in startups, but I needed a job, so I took it. <laughs> Uh, and I walked into uh, quite unknowingly a great a great situation. Um, ended up leading the marketing team there at Buildium for for five years. Um, had all kinds of success. Uh, bootstrapped the company to about six million dollars in revenue, uh, and then raised some venture capital thereafter. Uh, and just had a, a really successful run. Sort of had the opportunity to start my career uh, seeing a SaaS startup done right. Uh, mm. in, since. And along the way, uh, met my now co-founder at Outseta. His name is Dimitri. Um, he was one of the co-founders of Buildium. Uh, and this is sort of our, our second act together. That's cool. Well, so, okay. So that was the first one. And then this is the second one. Is that company still, is still going strong? Yeah, it's still going strong. Um, Buildium's killing it. They uh, actually were just acquired about a month ago now um, by a public company called RealPage for $580 million. Wow. So it was a very successful um, exit all the way around for you know the investors, the employees, um, the acquiring party, um, and really really proud of everything that that we accomplished there. Uh, but equally excited about this next act. Yeah, does that feel like you kind of walked out on that at all, knowing you know like you could have been because you were there early on. You I feel like it obviously not guaranteed, but maybe you could have been part of you know that exit. Yeah, um, it, so it, it was an interesting experience in general. Um, I was at Buildium for, for a total of five years, a little bit over five years. Um, and I ended up leaving, not because I thought the, the grass was greener or anything like that. Um, it was a company that I absolutely loved, um, that, that did so much for me on, on multiple dimensions. Uh, but I had started that job right after finishing my MBA. And after five years, I sort of felt like I'd been working on the same problem for five years. And I had done the MBA right out of college. Um, so I didn't have any other job experience. And I said to myself, hey, I need to really diversify my experience and prove that I can make a similar impact elsewhere. Um, so I left, I left Buildium. I went off and ran marketing at a couple other um, venture-backed companies. Um, and certainly, I think... Uh, I look back at my decision to leave with mixed emotions. Um, I think that my motivations were sound. Uh, and, and frankly, I would 
probably do the same thing again. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, if I had stayed and stuck around another three or four years, I would have got to see the company through a different stage of, stale, of scaling um, that I didn't have experience with. Um, but in terms of financial outcomes and whatnot, um, Buildium is kind of an anomaly in that it actually paid out several of their employees up to mm -hmm. three times. Um, so they had a pretty interesting equity structure that we can, we can get into if you want to, but um, when they first raised some money, then when they raised a Series A, um, both of those events in some instances uh, triggered payouts for employees, and then when the company was finally acquired again, um, that triggered a payout as well. So I, I hit on one of those, uh, missed out on a couple others. But. Yeah. That's fine. You got something, something to, to work on now. Right. So For sure. let's talk about Outset a little bit more. I was reading through the, the, like the story, you know, the story behind it, you got posted on the website. Obviously it's very straightforward what you guys do just from, you know, the tweets on there. I love that on the website too. Um, okay. But just for the audience explain, you know, where the idea came from and, and what Outset really is like the core issue. Sure. That it solves. Yeah, so the, the idea for the company Point Blank um, came out of our experience at this company I mentioned, Buildium, um, as we scaled the business from an early stage startup to about the $6 million, and $6 million in revenue that we, we bootstrapped till. Um, I was the head of marketing during that time. My now co-founder, Dimitri, was, was the CTO. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we scaled, I was kind of the person raising my hand and saying, hey, Dimitri, you know, we're at a stage where we need to go out and uh, invest in a marketing automation platform like HubSpot. We need to get a serious billing system. We need to get some customer support tools, something like Zendesk. Um, and Dimitri is an engineer uh, and sometimes a stubborn guy. Uh, and some, probably half the time he'd say to me, hey, you know, go evaluate the software products that are out there. Um, come back to me with a recommendation and yeah. we'll purchase whatever we need. The other half of the time he would say, you know, based on the needs that you described, I'm just going to build you something very basic that does whatever you, you need it to do. Mm -hmm. um, so we had built sort of a very basic homegrown billing system. We built a very basic um, support ticketing system. And as we years later sort of reflected on the technology choices that we made, we said, hey, those homegrown tools um, really served us very well. They were simple. Um, they were cost effective and every SaaS company out there is, is doing the same thing. Even at an early stage, they're going out and they're buying five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different software tools, right. evaluating those tools, integrating those tools, maintaining the integrations. And that comes with just a lot of unnecessary overhead for an early stage business, whether it's technical overhead, um, you know, maintaining all those integrations or financial overhead, just jumping through different uh, pricing right. tiers and different products. Um, so we started talking to other early stage SaaS founders and we said, what are the common denominators in terms of software that every SaaS business needs? Uh, and we came up with, with sort of three well-known categories of software. You need a CRM to store your prospect and customer data. You need a billing system to charge your customers. And you need some series of what I'll call um, customer communication tools. So email marketing, live chat, help desk functionality, that kind of stuff. Um, so those are the core features of the product. We, we sort of um, cover those, those basic needs for an early stage SaaS startup. Uh, but on top of that, the other part of the product um, that doesn't always come through quite as clearly is there's also a lot of table stakes functionality that every SaaS product needs to build that's not really a core part of their product offering. So things like 
how do you register a, a user or sign up a new user on your website, allow them to pick from the subscription options that you offer, and then authenticate them into your product and show them the correct version of your product based on their subscription? Mm -hmm. How do you let your users log into your product and update their credit card information or upgrade or downgrade their account from within your app? These are all things that get sort of bolted on to a, a SaaS product and it ends up just taking a lot of time and energy to build these things. Yeah. Um, so we offer quite a bit of um, sort of templated table stakes functionality that it takes to launch a SaaS app as well. That's super cool. Now, I feel like one of the, the you know, this is, in, it's an awesome product because I feel like it takes away, like you said, just a ton of overhead. Um, even as, you know, a marketing agency, you still see this type of problem where you need one, you know, like just so many different softwares and it's really all the same as a software company would use, right? You need your, sure. your CRM, you need your, your live chat for your website, stuff like that. Maybe an invoice creator, uh, a, a proposal builder. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot of the same, you know, similar things put together inside of you have people actually servicing instead. Now it's awesome when you find a tool that can just take all that and has put it together in a way that makes sense. And you can just build it out however you like, which sounds like it's exactly what I've said it's doing yep. now. What is one of the main ways that, you know, essentially you're getting this product into the hands that people that are looking for it. Yeah. So, so to your point, um, we have focused, uh, almost exclusively. If, if you look at our messaging, we're talking about SaaS companies. Um, that's our, that's our roots too. That's who we're bootstrap SaaS companies. That's who we're designing for. Um, but there certainly are a lot of other use cases, whether it's marketing agencies or really just anybody that sells their services on a retainer basis outside it can work really well for. Right. Um, but in terms of what we've done to get the word out, um, we are bootstrapping the business ourselves. We have uh, no intention of ever raising venture capital. And given the size of the product, um, we've gone into this taking a very sort of long uh, organic approach to, to growth. And, um, you know, if this is the last project I ever work on, I'll be totally happy with that. So what that means um, in practicality is we don't invest a lot of money at all or really any at this point in things like paid advertising. Uh, we've been optimizing pretty much every aspect of the business from the get-go uh, for the long term. So the vast majority of our acquisition strategy to date, um, in the early days, it was a lot of email prospecting, just cold emails to other SaaS founders. Mm -hmm. um, but it's mostly hinged on content marketing. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. But uh, aside from that, we do, we do quite a bit of blogging, uh, and that's driving us the vast majority um, of our signups. The sort of third part of our acquisition strategy would just be um, largely IndieHackers.com. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our product works really, really well in tandem with Stripe. We're a Stripe verified partner. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just a big community of founders launching subscription businesses um, using Stripe. So it's kind of a no-brainer for us to be active there. That's awesome. What about things like partnerships? So I looked and it says that you are a Stripe verified partner. I was actually on Facebook. Um, and I realized, I noticed that you had a partnership with a company called, or not partnership with a, um, an integration with a company called Hyperize. You're probably familiar with it. Um, so I saw that on there too. Is that something that you're doing, you know, with other cutting edge tools out there, just trying to find ways that you can both benefit from each other with an integration and then shipping that out? We haven't done a whole lot in the way of, of partnerships. Um, Stripe is really the, the main one. 
just because the two products are, are sort of perfectly complementary to one another. Um, I, I would say more so than technology partnerships, um, we're just focused on finding uh, communities of SaaS founders that are building new businesses and just trying to be helpful in those communities however we can. Um, there's a number of those I can mention. There's a Facebook group called um, SaaS Growth Hacks that's pretty large. Um, there's a marketer uh, or, or founder of a company called Transistor FM named Justin Jackson, who has a private community um, called the Mega Maker Club um, that we're a part of. And there's a number of those that we've we've used uh, from an acquisition perspective as well. Is that something that you'd recommend to a lot of people is just being part of communities, providing value, maybe if you have content, sharing it there, answering questions, stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, um, <clears throat> so I, I refer to it and it's not my term, but community marketing is sort of a term that I think is um, becoming more, more popularized. Um, and it's a skill in and of itself because a lot of these communities, um, particularly communities of SaaS founders, um, the founders in there, you know, are, are part of that group to get the benefit of the other founders in the group. They are not there to be marketed or sold to. So it's how do you join that that community in an, in an authentic way, um, genuinely help other people, but in the process also expose them to, to your service. Um, and there's a fine line there, but it's definitely something I would recommend to any company, regardless of the space you're in. Um, I'm a marketer my, myself, and the name of the game is just find out where your prospects hang out and, and be there. <laughs> now, you mentioned something important as that, you know, uh, previously is talking about becoming a lean company. And I want to get your perspective on how that's changed right now, right? We're going through this Corona uh, pandemic. Things are changing very, very fast. Zoom just skyrocketed and they, they've become like one of the top companies throughout this whole yep. thing. Um, what is your experience with Outseta with that specifically? And maybe some of the things that people had said to you in the past regarding, you know, being as lean as possible or just trying to pace as many, you know, softwares as, as possible together. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, when you talk about the, the Silicon Valley approach of building a SaaS company, um, you know, the vast majority of companies are, are focused on getting enough early traction that they can raise venture capital, deploying that venture capital to run the business at a huge loss and jack up their growth rate as much as they possibly can to show the potential of the business and hope that they get um, acquired you know, going, going forward. And while that's a common recipe, uh, I think it's, it's problematic in a lot of ways. Um, when you do take that venture capital, you are committing to growth that I think is not a good fit for a lot of companies. And I think in the wake of everything that's going on right now, we're, we're starting to realize that there's a lot of SaaS businesses that frankly, before the month of March, were doing great. And all of a sudden they're, you know, scrambling to cut overhead in every place possible. They're going out of business. They're doing huge rounds of layoffs. And to me, that's indicative of, for the vast majorities of companies, that Silicon Valley model isn't necessarily the right one to be following. And I think, frankly, that's um, shown nowhere more than in companies' software consumption themselves. Um, I talk to SaaS founders all day long. I routinely come across founders that you know, have subscriptions to HubSpot and Marketo. I was talking to a founder the other day who literally has subscriptions to ProfitWell, ChartMogul, and Metrics, oh. um, And they just have all these fractionally used tools. And the Great. mindset is these subscriptions aren't terribly expensive. Um, let's 
buy and use every tool that we possibly can get any benefit of and the costs are fairly negligible. Um, but, but I think there's a lot of problems with that. One is, yes, there's unnecessary technical and financial uh, overhead, but, but beyond that, you just end up with a lot of fractionally used tools and you sort of lose context on your customer's journey and the process. So for the last three years, um, we've had a headline on our website <clears throat> that was um, grow your SaaS startup, not your overhead. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually recently at the beginning of this year changed up that headline. My, my feeling uh, as a marketer was we were kind of emphasizing price too much. And, and frankly, uh, a lot of the companies we were talking to just, just didn't care. Yeah. Uh, but ironically, in the wake of everything that's happening, um, we've had a lot of people reach out to us recently and they've said, you know, we're, we're cutting our subscription costs. We need to find a way to operate our business in a way that's uh, more lean and more streamlined. Um, and not only is outside a good fit for them, but they've also just been sort of following our own journey of how we're building our company, uh, and really trying to be as lean as possible in every decision that we make. Uh, and it's, it's starting to resonate. So do I, do I wish, um, you know, the, the current circumstances were what was causing that? No, not at all. But I, I do think, uh, it's, it's a good wake up call for companies that, there are means of running a business with a lot less overhead and that could be attractive going into the future for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And I think like you said, like obviously there's a lot of companies that are suffering, right? Like a ton, probably a majority of them. But there's also a handful of companies and industries uh, that are thriving throughout this whole thing, which I mean, you you could say about literally any situation out there, there's always going to be pros and cons, but I think in, 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 you know, in the context that we're speaking in, I don't think it really, I think the, the entire coronavirus, uh, you know, thing that is happening right now is only being an accelerator to what would have happened regardless, you know, had we just gone far a little bit longer, I think, because people are going to realize eventually that, you know, working remote is actually you know, more productive, people are happier, Absolutely. et cetera. So it was only a matter of time, I think, and not necessarily circumstances. Yeah, it's been a phenomenal accelerant uh, of, of remote work. And, and I think similarly, you're going to see a lot of folks that for better or worse got, got laid off that are trying to figure out what to do next. And uh, I think you will see sort of more indie hackers and more people trying to launch their own uh, subscription businesses and, and products. And uh, certainly we'd, we'd love to help them at Outseta. Awesome. Now, before we, we started with the, with the interview, uh, when we were talking, you mentioned something about running a company that I thought was interesting, uh, running a company with, with, I forgot how, exactly how you put it, but like with no goals. Uh, sure. I think you know what I'm talking about now. Yeah. So, so we're, uh, we're, we're building what we call a self-managed company and, and self-management is a thing. It's an organizational structure um, that isn't terribly popular here in the U S just yet. Um, there is uh there are examples of, of large companies at scale that have embraced it. One is Zappos, the shoe company. Um, they're probably the most famous example. Uh, but the idea is essentially you run a business without any hierarchy whatsoever. Um, so there's, there's no bosses. Um, people are, are basically assessed just on their contributions to the company and, and merit. Um, my co-founders and I, like none of us identify as the CEO. We don't have formal titles. Um, I just kind of gravitate towards doing the, the marketing and customer facing work because that's my skill set. And 
uh, our engineers gravitate towards doing the technical work because that's you know this the skills that they have right um and it's not any it's not any rejection so to speak of of authority or, or hierarchy it's just we think that you can create a workplace that's much more engaging uh using this format and aside from no bosses um we don't really have budgets we don't really have performance targets uh mm. we all, all those sorts of things and the thought process there um just using performance targets as an example a lot of times i think um, sales quotas or just other goals actually drive negative behaviors so you set this kind of arbitrary target you know you come to the end of the quarter um, you're doing everything you're offering deep discounts you're doing everything to get those sales through through the door before the end of the quarter to hit that goal that in the first place is arbitrary and then you kind of exhaust your your sales pipeline you discounted your product and you you sort of uh, manipulated your business in a way that you really didn't need to in the vein of hitting that kind of artificial goal so the whole idea with self-management is is rather than uh, be bound by those sorts of budgets or those sorts of targets always just operate in the best interest of the company long term and we think if you do that you know let alone um, over a month over a quarter over a year over five years you're going to come out far ahead uh, than if you were sort of artificially bound by a management structure a right. financial budget those sorts of things and i think that's super interesting I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it, right? Um, and, and one of the first things that I thought of, okay, can this only be done if you are not planning, especially in the software space, if you're planning on, on not raising capital, I mean, can you go to, a, to an investor and say, we're a self-managed company and we don't have any goals, we don't have bosses, even though I, I think Zappos, I'm sure they have either their ICO'd or, or IPO'd, sorry, or they have investors yeah, uh, it, it, it's a good question. Um, my my personal take on on that is this. Um, first of all, that yes, I agree with your point. This is an organizational structure that's not terribly compatible, probably with most investors, and and that's fine. Right expectations. Right, and it's fine in our case because our our goal is never to have to raise venture capital. Um, but but I would argue, I, I do think. Um, investors as a whole are, are pretty smart people and uh you know in any business regardless of your organizational structure if your metrics are good enough if your traction is good enough if you're growing at a healthy rate uh, i think you can probably get investors on board that right. are happy with whatever organizational structure uh, is being used particularly if you can point to it actually being helpful to the company and uh I think just in the context of our small team, uh, it's certainly been helpful. I think we're farther along than we would be without it. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, that will be something that we prove out a lot more going forward as our team scales. Right. And like you say, I think it's, it's important, you know, to just explain how it would work and, and the benefits of it. Because I do think just from hearing it, you know, not even giving it much thought, really, it seems valuable, right? If, if somebody doesn't know how to do something, you said it would, you know, increase engagement which I ran it through my head and immediately it does, right? If, if I don't know what I have to do, then I just ask someone. And if they don't know, they, they send me to the person that they know who knows. So okay. just stuff like that, where it would definitely, I mean, I think people would work better um, not knowing everything that they have to know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it probably, honestly, people kind of latch on to this notion of no bosses, but it's not about no bosses. At the end of the day, what self-management is really about is empowering your employees and allowing them to make decisions autonomously. Um, so part of self-management, it's, it's you know, in vogue these days in the world of software to run your business with a huge amount of transparency. And that's a, that's a prerequisite for doing this. You can't give an employee uh, free reign to make decisions autonomously without asking other people if they don't have all the information that typically a CEO or the founders or the executive team would have. So if you work at our company, whether you're a, a co-founder of the company or a contractor, you're going to get access to every piece of data, every piece of information about the business because you need that in order to make decisions. So as an example, um, we're still a small team. So, you know, I'm doing the vast majority of the marketing work, but as we scale out the marketing team, uh, if there's a marketer that's working alongside me, they don't have to come to me because I'm the co-founder and ask me if they can make an investment in a particular marketing channel. They mm -hmm. can just go do it themselves if they think it's the right thing to do for the business. And the reason that they can do that is because they have the same context that I do. Right. Uh, and, and that's a huge part of the model. That's cool. That's super interesting. Yeah. Now, throughout this, I guess to just keep on talking about this, about this, uh, you know, topic is, what is in your experience so far from doing it, the hardest thing about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think the hardest part about it, honestly, is really buying into it at first. Um, there's a reluctance, especially for, so we've been, we've been doing this for the last four years and uh, had sort of taken inroads down this path even, even prior to that. But even for myself and particularly for people who are new to working in an environment like this, it sounds like this really freeing, really liberating idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you find yourself in a position where you essentially have the same power that a CEO would have and you have the ability to act right. quickly and make decisions and spend money. And it almost feels unnatural to start. You, you're kind of looking over your shoulder saying, hey, who should I be telling about this? Right. Um, and the model is not to, uh, it's not meant to encourage people, you know, to make decisions in isolation without ever talking to other people about it. It's just saying, you know, there's no formal chain of command here. We certainly encourage you to talk this over with um, whoever can be helpful to the conversation. But when you're ready to act, go ahead. So I think just uh, almost getting out of your, your own way is one of the big challenges. Yeah. Um, that we've realized early on. And I definitely think um, this is a topic that we plan to talk a lot more about going forward publicly on our blog and whatnot. Uh, but, but frankly, a lot of the challenges are ahead of us. Um, running a self-managed team of four or five employees isn't too difficult, but when you get to, uh, you know, hundreds of employees, thousands of employees, right. of employees, you do have um, different challenges uh, that, that need to be faced at yeah. that point. And one of the things too is, I mean, just thinking about it, when, when you bring people in that have been working at an organization where it's a complete opposite, right? You're going to have a lot of habits that need to be broken, yep. uh, that need to be rewired just to get them on board. And, and another question with that is, how do you look for team members, right? I feel like there's got to be a specific, uh, a specific mentality, yeah. personality to, to really match with this idea. Ab absolutely. Um, I think one thing this... 100% does is uh, makes human resources, people ops, whatever you want to call it, hiring in general, um, 
even that much more important. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've always harped on hiring in the context of a startup, particularly a high growth startup, um, is probably the single most important thing that the company does. But even more so in this regard, it does take uh, the type of person that is a self-starter, the type of person that would um, succeed working remotely, to be frank, mm -hmm. uh, and the type of person that's, that's really self-motivated to come in and sort of fully take advantage of, of this organizational structure and, and thrive. There's going to be people that this isn't a good fit for at all. And that's, right. that's totally fine. And I think it really um, results in, it forces you to hire slow, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at our size, we've been fairly fortunate so far. Um, the people that we're working with, whether they're full-time employees or contractors are largely people that we've worked with in the past that we knew would sort of excel in this format. Uh, but, but going forward, uh, certainly hiring is going to be of critical importance. Yeah, that's awesome. Now to switch gears here, we've got, we've got a couple minutes, uh, to talk a little bit more about the personal, you know, aspect of growing a business as a founder slash not a founder because, uh, you know, sure. the structural <laughs> idea behind it. Yeah. What's, what's it like, um, you know, to, to be in the position that you're in, uh, when, when it comes down to personal, like, I feel like there's a lot of things and I don't know if you've, I think now what we've been talking is you, you've always worked remotely, uh, without Seta. Uh, Outseta has always been a hundred percent remote. Yeah. Um, when I was at Buildium that we talked about previously, um, I started out there working in house in their Boston office for two or three years. Um, at that point, uh, I was, I had just spent my whole life in new England and was ready to run away from the cold. And I asked my bosses at that point, if I could work remotely from San Diego, uh, moved across the country. They, they gave me free reign to do that. And I've been uh, working remotely for seven or eight years ever since. What's um, for, for everyone that's remote right now, that's not, not used to it. That's not, you know, anything like that? What's, what's the most challenging thing and how do you tackle it? Yeah, good question. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm a bad person for this question. Um, <clears throat> my first day when I got to San Diego and it was like my first day working remote, uh, I was living like right on the beach. It was a sunny day out. It was beautiful. It was 80 degrees. And I remember like looking out the window, just being like, how am I ever going to do this? I just want to go you know, yeah. drink, a, drink a beer and sit on that beach. How am I going to be disciplined enough? Um, but I, I think for me, um, I've always worked in the context of early stage startups um, or relatively early stage startups. And the reality is there's nowhere to hide. If I don't do my job, uh, you, you know, it's going to be glaringly obvious. Um, and I recognize that pretty quickly. And I think I also, um, both at Buildium and, and at Outseta, um, was hugely motivated by the fact that I had an employer and, and now myself. Uh, that permitted working remotely and sort of gave me that uh, level of freedom. And, and to me, that was liberating and made me work absolutely harder than I would have otherwise if I was going into an office every day. Um, but, but my tips in general for people that are new at it, um, one of the best things that's ever happened to me uh, is I, I live in a fairly small two-bedroom condo. Uh, and I had kids recently, we were expecting to have one, we had two, uh, and all of a sudden the, the office that I had uh, went away to, to childcare. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a detached garage that I'm actually sitting in now um, that I've converted into an office, but it was a blessing in disguise because I'm 
in this garage, which is a private space. Uh, I don't have a TV. I don't have a bathroom. I don't have a refrigerator. I have a computer and a desk. So when I come in here, I have nothing to do literally except sit down and get work done. And for me, that's been a huge productivity hack, just sort of isolating yourself. Um, yeah. I know everyone's isolated now, uh, <laughs> not on their own, own accord. Um, right. For me, that's really helpful. Yeah, I think having your, your like designated workplace where that's the only thing that happens in that spot, I feel like that's super helpful. Um, and, and I think just overall, like, I feel like you, you hit the nail on the head there with, you know, just the, the idea that there's like for you, the window with the beach, there's just distractions. There's a lot of distractions. Then you have kids uh, yeah. and there's a lot of noise and stuff like that. So she's finding that place that's going to give you, you know, what you need or take away what you don't need to actually get the stuff that you need to get done. Absolutely. And, and then there's the, the basic stuff too. Um, I mean, you, you gotta, especially if you work from home where you, where you actually live, um, you, you've got to get outside. You've got to make a point to leave your house. You can't yeah. work in your house all day and then sit there and watch TV afterwards. Um, so all those sorts of things are definitely helpful. Totally. What is one thing that you're not good at? In terms of, uh, in terms of working remotely or in general? In, in general, yeah. <laughs> um, I am very non-technical, uh, which is weird to say working for a software company. Um, I don't write any code. I'm not a designer. Uh, I'm not even very technically oriented. I, I don't have an iPhone. I mm. care less about driving a Tesla. Um, and, and I think that, uh, a lot of people are taken aback by that when they learn that I've worked in software yes. startups my whole life. And, and there's definitely drawbacks to it. Don't get me wrong. Um, I wish I was more technical. Sometimes I'm not as self-sufficient as I would like to be, uh, because I'm not more technically oriented <laughs> myself. Um, but I do think there's benefits too. Uh, I think that people in tech by and large are techie. Uh, and as a result, um, they're sort of blinded by technology and they use all these different tools and try everything under the sun. And there's probably some value that they derive from that. But for me, I think I'm able to look at technology more objectively and say, is this actually benefiting me? Is this making something I'm trying to do easier? Right, right. And if the answer is not a resounding no, I'm not going to use it just because it's new and cool. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think that's um, that's probably the biggest thing that comes to mind uh, in the vein of running a SaaS startup. The other thing that I would say, which is more of a somewhat recent realization, just because I haven't had to do it a lot in the past, um, as a founder of Outseta, um, I have two co-founders that basically are the engineers. We have a designer. I do almost everything else that's that's sort of customer facing or business oriented. Um, and just to be quite frank, I, I don't really enjoy sales. Um, yep. I don't think I'm terrible at it, but I certainly don't think I'm great at it. And it's just not an aspect, uh, of the job that I really enjoy. Um, my attitude for better or worse is, uh, or, or my own sales strategy is, is kind of try to be overtly, uh, helpful. And, and I think that's the best I can do beyond that. I can show you the product. I can show you what's there. I can show you the yep. functionality. 
but I'm not going to do a whole lot to really sell you on it. I'm going to show it to you and let you make your own decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably not the hallmark of a great salesperson. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, product led growth essentially is another topic, right? But letting sure. the product sell itself is always big. And I love what you said, you know, about um, just not being the mm -hmm. most technical oriented person, because it, honestly, while you were saying that, it just goes back to Outseta, right? Just looking at like if you're super technical, you're going to find a way to put all these 100 tools together and sure. hey, it works. But yeah, it's also costing you $2,000 per month that you can't afford. Right. Where if you have Outseta, right, you're saving a ton of money and you only have to worry about one tool. So Absolutely. I think that makes complete sense. Now, in, in contrast, right, what's one thing that you're really good at? Yeah, I, I think I have two, two main strengths. Um, one, I flex a lot. The other, I, I do not at this point. Um, the, the two would be, um, I think I'm good at leading in a non-threatening way. Uh, and when I've worked in larger companies and companies at greater scale, uh, I think the people that I have managed directly in those, those circumstances have thrived working under me and, and enjoy that. Um, and I really like the people aspect of business. I think a lot of people, uh, particularly in tech companies, love the tech and don't love the people. I love the people and I don't love the tech. Uh, but frankly, working in a self-managed company and at a company the size of Outseta at this point, um, yeah. there's not much to lead. Uh, the, the other thing um, that I think is a strength is, is writing and it goes back to my writing background. Uh, most of our acquisition strategy, as I've mentioned, is around okay. uh, content marketing, and that's probably what I invest uh, at least 50% of my time and effort doing. That's super cool. Now, if, if actually, how do you find stuff to write about? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, too. Um, I think for, for me, the, the cheat code that nobody ever really told me about when it comes to founding your own business is... I don't have to think too much about what to write about. I just write about my own experiences trying to grow out Seta. Um, if you read our blog, a lot of it is, um, you know, these are growth experiments that, that we ran. These are challenges we were faced with and, and how I'm thinking through them. Um, I've written a lot recently about our positioning and messaging specifically. Um, one of the challenges with a all-in-one solution is, uh, a lot of buyers get this perception that you do too many things, so you can't do any of them well. And mm -hmm. how do we, uh, you know, speak to the all-encompassing nature of the platform uh, without sort of giving buyers that that feeling that we probably don't do anything so well? Right. Um, so, so things like that. <clears throat> That's awesome. Do you have any companies that you look up to in software specifically, as far as what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Buildium is a, a, an answer I would have said forever, and I, I maintain it's an amazing company, um, but oper they operate in the property management industry, so it, it's not one that's often cited in, in SaaS circles, so to speak. A um, couple companies come, come to mind that I'd love to give a shout out to. Um, the first one is definitely Wistia. Um, I'm probably Wistia's biggest fanboy at this point. Um, I've got some friends over there. Uh, I, I think it's just remarkable that they made the decision to buy out their investors previously and, uh, you know, sort of take over control of their own fate. And, uh, you know, they're a, a business at scale at this point that has sort of these um, self-imposed restrictions because they've got to yeah. pay back the investors that they bought out. But um, there's not too many people 
in SaaS or anywhere that would walk away from the pot of gold that those two co-founders yeah. did. And um, I really admire their their motivations uh, and the the cr creative aspect of um, building their company that that they've emphasized. Um, another that isn't as as well known that just amazes me as a remarkable company um, is called Springboard.com. Springboard is a uh, online education company based up in, in San Francisco um, that sells online courses and things like software engineering, digital marketing, UX design. Um, it's just one of the smartest, nicest groups of people I've ever come across. Um, whoever is working in HR for Springboard is, is doing something right. I'm constantly really, really impressed by just the quality of their employees and, and how nice uh, everybody is. And um, also I'm, uh, those are the two that immediately come to mind. <clears throat> Being a, a writer, uh, I assume, and I know it's wrong to assume, but I think you probably like to read. Yep. Uh, is there any book that has just changed your life? <clears throat> hmm, good question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say uh, particularly like as we think about business books, there hasn't been like a singular book that, that's changed my life. Um, there's, there's two that, that I would mention that have had influence. Um, one is a totally unoriginal answer. The other is pretty good. Um, the, the lean startup by Eric rise, everyone has, has read it. Um, but I think anyone that works in startups that, that should be like required reading the first yep. thing you read. I, I, I think if, you, you know, as someone that's been in this space for 10 years, those concepts are sort of second nature to me at this point and are to most people. But if you're new to tech, I can't think of something better to read to start out than that. Um, the other one would be a book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux. Um, he is sort of like the pioneer or one of the pioneers of self-management that we've been talking about. Uh, and his book is probably the most comprehensive study of businesses that have embraced self-management and, and grown at significant scale. Um, so a lot of the concepts around supporting autonomous decision-making um, and, and even just like allowing people to sort of drop their professional facade and bring, you know, the, the entirety of their humanity uh, to work with themselves. Um, those are concepts he talks a lot about in that book. And it's um, a book that really, brought our co-founding team together. That's awesome. That's really cool. I'll have to check those out. Uh, two more questions here and, and, and we'll wrap up. Where can sure. people find you online, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, outsider.com. Certainly. If you want to, if you want to check out um, our, our products, um, I am a, I'm kind of down on Facebook. Uh, I'm very active both on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a G off. So it's G E O F F Roberts. I uh, would be happy to connect with anybody. Uh, and over at IndieHackers.com as well. Um, we're, we're quite active there. Oh, awesome. And last question. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I, I don't. Um, honestly, I don't know a ton about your agency. I'd love to just hear a little bit about it. Um, obviously, you, you focus on SaaS, but how long have you been around and what are sort of your goals and motivations? Yeah, I feel weird answering the second one now because I feel like I shouldn't have goals. Um, no, but goals is just to help as many software founders as possible, right? And and obviously it's not super structured, but aside from that, we we slash I uh, been working at agencies for a while now, and I, I always since I was you know 
uh, I wouldn't say a kid, but like I was out of high school, I created my first company it was a clothing company. And, and that's when I got the entrepreneur bug, I guess. Uh, and then after that, it was just trying to figure out really ways to, to grow something. Uh, it was always sort of a brand or a company. And then I stumbled upon software while I was working at a different agency. And I just loved the business model. I loved, you know, everything as far as like how do they design their websites, just things like that. And then just getting more and more interested in that, joining communities like um, uh, SaaS Growth Hacks, all those different communities on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, and then finally founding the agency. I think it was actually, it was kind of like a side hustle for that I was tiding for conflict of interest kind of things for a while. Um, so I was doing that for, I'd say like two years and then finally I was able to just take off on my own. And it, it was one of the scariest and, and most fulfilling decisions, I think. And awesome. uh, just ever since that, I think we've been full time now for a little bit over a year. Um, but it's been great so far. And obviously building the relationships have been just amazing. And, and the podcast is really a way to connect with more people uh, for sure. at somewhat scale, but it's been, it's been a journey on its own. Very cool. And what, um, what, what kind of work do you specialize in? Is it a lot of paid advertising or it's, SEO? It's, or yeah, it's mainly paid advertising. So all your, you know, display Google, Facebook, all that stuff, uh, content, content that is related to that creation and a lot of copywriting too. So big on, you know, using, uh, human behavior, psychology, you know, frameworks and stuff like that to get people to act on stuff. It sounds kind of shady when I say it, but it's just, you know, part of advertising as a whole conversion so, copywriting absolutely right. exactly yeah. so just just you know the the main the the bread and butter is really the paid advertising side of things very cool well uh certainly i will i will keep that in mind uh as you would expect given our product i'm also talking to SaaS founders all day long and they frequently need marketing help so awesome yeah let us know and uh again jeff thanks for being on here it was a pleasure i really enjoyed our conversation and uh, for anyone that's watching, listening, make sure to subscribe, like, give it a, a review and stuff like that. And we'll catch you on the next one. All right. Thanks so much, Luis. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye.